So if you're new to Chapel Street, or maybe you've been around for a while, but you may not know, we have a podcast on Mondays. Joe Scavato, who was a pastoral resident, now is on our staff, had this idea. Uh, here's the idea. I, I don't know about you, but as a preacher, I study hard for the sermons. We, those of us who preach, study and work at it for weeks ahead of time, preach the sermon, and then by Monday we kind of forget about it and we're on to the next thing. Do those of you who listen to sermons do the same thing? Do you come and think, oh, that's good, I've got to think about this, God wants to speak to me about this, and then by Monday you go back to work or school or whatever and you forget. And is that anybody? Is it just preachers? You don't do that? I think we all do that, right? So the idea behind the podcast is we're trying to make those things that God is teaching us, those who preach and those who are receiving the message, live with us more than just Sunday. So tune in. It's called the For Where You Are podcast. Joe does a great job hosting. He asks questions about what we just learned, probes deeper, and those of us that are on the preaching team discuss these things, and hopefully it's an encouragement to you in your faith that God's Word would live in your minds and hearts beyond the weekend message, because I think we all need that. Last week's sermon in our series, Faith That Finishes, the book of 2 Peter, was looking at false teachers and fake news. It was a rough passage for many of us uh, to get through. Good, if we understand it, but it's, it was challenging. It talks a lot about judgment and about uh, the people being led astray in the first century and the 21st century. I made the comment in the sermon that the goal of that is not to look out there for all the false counterfeit people, but to look inward and say, Am I, do I have a firm grasp on the truth, on the gospel? Am I walking in the truth? And a woman emailed me this week and and reached out and said, Pastor Jeff, I've been thinking about that question, and I don't know how to know if I know what the gospel is, and uh, am I walking in the truth? So we had a back and forth exchange. I shared some scriptures with her, and the long and short of it was, she recognized by reading the word of God and by processing with me via email, yes, I do know who Jesus is. I am walking in the truth. And really, it was a reminder for her. and, And frankly, for me, reminding her was a reminder to me. And we all need reminders, don't we, from time to time. We are forgetful people. You could make the case that Peter's two letters, which we just studied, 1 Peter, now we're in 2 Peter, two weeks left, are written reminders to the people of God. Because we get distracted. We get off track. And we forget. And these reminders are powerful and necessary. So you have your Bible open to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll read together, or you can follow on the screen. 2 Peter chapter 3. This now is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. There it is. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they have deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. Okay, Peter starts off by telling us that he's going to stir us up by way of reminder. He's echoing what he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1. If you were here, we talked about that. He says, I 
I'm going to stir you, I love that phrase, stir you up by way of reminder. And then he says, as long as I live in the tent of this body, as long as, I'm in the, as long as I have breath and life on earth, I think it's my spiritual job to keep reminding you. Because you forget. And I need those. This is, the first thing I want you to see is the ministry of reminding. The ministry of reminding. It really is a ministry we can and should have with one another. It's what I experienced this week with that email exchange with a woman. And it's what I've needed throughout COVID. Maybe you have as well. In fact, back when, when, uh, when the pandemic was when early, in the early stages of the last 16 months, when we were all shut down and locked down, none of us knew what to think about any of it and what, uh, what was happening. There was a lot of fear, and we were not meeting. None of us were meeting at all. And I was preaching in an empty room. This room was empty. None of you were here. I can't tell you how great it is to see your whole faces and have people here because for a long stretch of time, there was just a red light and a camera back there and just me preaching on stage. And I was in a bit of a funk. I tried to put on a good face for the staff, but I was really discouraged. I was frustrated. I didn't know when this was going to end. I didn't know how to have a sense of how our church is doing, how to keep track. People were more divided and isolated because we're alone. And it was, I was having a bit of a pity party, to be honest. I was struggling uh, internally. And I was on a Zoom call with some pastors that I'm in relationships with around the country. And one of them named Jason Cusick, who preached here a couple of years ago. You might remember Jason. Uh, Jason said on the Zoom call, he said, brothers, what a privilege it is that we get to shepherd the church of God through such a unique time in human history. And when he said that, I thought, what's wrong with him? <laughs> Did not feel like a privilege at all. But I went home and I thought about that throughout the week and I thought, you know, he's right. He's right. God's grace and call is a privilege, even when it's hard. It's a privilege. And I, I just needed to be reminded of that. I'd forgotten. And we all need that from time to time. Spiritual reminders. And Peter's saying, that's a ministry we play to each other. Years ago, I was sitting at a coffee shop looking over my sermon notes for the sermon that weekend. It was on Ephesians 6, Spiritual Warfare, where Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and powers and principalities of the dark world, meaning we have spiritual battle. And God, the Holy Spirit, put in my mind, you should text this verse to this dad. My son at the time was playing football at Wheaton College and another dad and, uh, who I'd gotten to know, I had his cell number. They were going through a tough time, a legal battle. And I, I don't know him. We weren't good friends. We didn't keep in touch, but I felt like God was prompting me to text him. Uh, so I did. Just fired off a text. Just quoting that verse saying, praying for you. I know you're going through a tough time. Like immediately the three dots showed up, you know, like he's texting back right away. I'm like, oh, he must. And then it comes back. You have no idea what this meant to me. Why did you text me right now? I feel, I've been feeling alone, under attack. This is exactly what I needed to hear. I had no idea, but God did. And he used me to be a reminder to him. Here's, here's my point. You might be somebody's spiritual reminder this week. God might use you to, to remind somebody of the truth that they're slipping from or forgetting or losing sight of. And he might use someone else to remind you. It really is a ministry that we should have in each other's lives. Okay, let's look at verses one through four. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up, I love that phrase, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, this is important. This phrase, sincere mind, is an interesting Greek word. It, it literally means to have your, your, your mind enlightened, to see clearly like by the sunlight. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's great quote where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So Peter's saying, I, I'm stirring you up so that you would see clearly. 
Not like, you know, stumbling around in the dark with shadows, but you'd see clearly having divine light for your spiritual sight, in other words. And specifically, he says, what kind of reminder? The holy prophets, meaning the Old Testament, the commandment of the Lord and Savior, that's Jesus Christ, through your apostles, that's the New Testament. In other words, Peter's saying the reminder is not just something, some clever quote you read on Pinterest. It's this. It's the Word of God. Our ministry of reminding is to remind people of what the truth actually is. Because there's a thousand other competing messages in the culture today, and this is what we remind each other of. So this week, if you're paying attention, perhaps if you're reading God's Word, I hope that you are, and something God speaks to you, ask God, who, needs to, who else needs to hear this? Who could I share this with to encourage them and to remind them? That's specifically what Peter's saying to us here. And then in verse 3, he says, Knowing this, that in the last days, first of all, scoffers, next verse, will come in the last days. This phrase, last days, is an interesting phrase we should talk about. If you're new to reading the Bible, uh, it's, a, it's an era of human history. So Jesus is crucified, he's resurrected, and he ascends into heaven. The Christians, there's only 120 in the world at that time, gather together, and the Holy Spirit descends on them, and this is the birth of the church, we call this Pentecost. And someday Jesus will return. So the last days are all the days between the birth of the church, Pentecost, and his eventual return, which includes what period of time? Right now. Think about that for a minute. Right now, whenever you see the phrase last days in the Bible, you should think that's talking about me. He's talking about us. He's talking about our cultural moment right now. And he says one of the characteristics of our cultural moment, the last days, this period of history, is that there are scoffers are going to come who scoff. Haters hate and scoffers scoff, apparently. Right? This is what they do. Specifically, they're going to scoff at the promises of God, the claims of the Bible. They're going to mock I read an article this week in, uh, in Newsweek that said, the, the title of the article actually uh, is rather shocking. It says, university professor argues white evangelicals may end up killing us all. Talk about clickbait. And you read through, there's some very irresponsible reporting in there, some things that really frustrate me and stir me up. There's some things also that I think are completely overstated and misrepresented. There are also some things that as a leader of a church, we should grieve that, we're, that, we're, that it, it could even be said about us, even if it's not true or not completely true. And I'll be honest, when I read stuff like that, I get angry inside. I get frustrated. I feel misrepresented. I feel mischaracterized. Maybe you do as well for my beliefs. I feel maybe even intentionally misrepresented. And, I, and there's a part of me that, that wants to, def, to, to defend and to argue and to dig in. But I just would, if you, if you ever feel that way, if any of you ever feel that way like I do, this would remind you that, that an angry, defensive Christian faith will never accomplish the purposes of God on earth. We'll never get there that way. That's not what God has for us. Now, there's a connection Peter makes, uh, which is that we should not be surprised by the antagonism of the culture around us. So this is one of the marks of living in the last days. It's going to happen. Don't be thrown off. Don't be shocked. Don't be discouraged. And then he says something really interesting. He says, they, they scoff and they follow their own sinful desires. He's putting those things together. Those who reject the claims of God's word and the, and the truths of God do so because they are following something else. And if you peel back enough layers of the onion, it's their own sinful desires. Meaning, 
If you decide the way to live your life is to give free reign to every passion and desire that you have, you will eventually find yourself rejecting God. Because the Bible's claims is that every desire and passion you have, apart from Christ, is not always good for you. In fact, the way to live a fulfilled life is not to give in to every desire. But some desires should be resisted, should be brought before God's grace and, and confessed. They're not all good for us. Sometimes self-denial is the path to wholeness and joy in life. But our culture doesn't say that. So Peter's saying here, those who scoff and mock are actually following, there's a reason for their unbelief, in other words. They're following different claims, their own sinful desires. It's important for us to keep that in mind. In fact, the word for sinful desire is the Greek word epithemeo. It, it's a compound word meaning epi over themeo, desire, and over desire. Like a desire out of control. A desire that controls you. Is precisely what he's saying. That's why they're scoffing and mocking. And then verse 4. Specifically, what are, they, what are they scoffing at? They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Who's coming? Jesus. So the, the specific in first century is he's not coming back. You're wasting your time. For, since our fathers fell asleep, meaning since the ancestors died, things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The wheel in the sky keeps on turning. Things go round and round, and you're believing a lie, in other words. This is not worth your time. Now, all of us, um, this brings us to the reality of the day of the Lord. The reality of the day of the Lord. That's another phrase we need to get straight in Scripture, the day of the Lord. It, sometimes you might refer to this as judgment day. And for many of us, that sounds negative and harsh, and we don't like to think about that. But the day of the Lord is actually really good news, and we'll try to explain why. Um, they're, they're saying, you Christians are wasting your time following and, and being obedient to the teachings of a dead guy who's not coming back. You're better off just letting your own desires lead you and create the best life you can. Sounds rather contemporary, doesn't it? But why, why follow this guy? He's not coming back. It's, I mean, where is he? How much time has passed? Most of us have a script for our lives that goes something like this. The details might be different in your script for your life, but we all have a script in our head, and it goes something like this. I am the main character in my story, and you all are supporting cast. And so is Jesus, quite frankly. And I wouldn't say that out loud, although I just did. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm the center of the story. I'm the hero of the story. And I love you, and I'm glad you're around, but you're really here to, prop, to, to serve the, you know, my story. That's our default mode as human beings. You might be a tragic hero, a comic hero, or, you know, the, you know a, a, an action hero like I am in my own head. Whatever the case, right? We've all got a script for our lives, and it's I'm the main character, and Jesus is my supporting cast. The day of the Lord means someday an actual day is coming when everyone on earth is going to go, oh, I've had this wrong. He's the main character. He's the hero. We are the supporting cast. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue confess, some willingly in worship, some forcibly. When we'll recognize he's always been the hero and we're the supporting cast. I've had it wrong, in other words. That day, judgment day, when he will set all things right. There's a lot of talk in our culture, this is not a secret, if you, you all know this, about justice, longing for justice, racial inequity and racial justice, justice for the mistreatment of women and the abuse of children. And I think, it, by and large, it's a good thing that there's a kind of awakening that has happened in our culture, in our nation, in our world, for things we might have been blind to. Justice, that God cares about these things. Now, there's all kinds of discussions we could have about corrupted solutions and bad ideas for how to fix it. That's rampant as well. 
But on the, on the whole, it's a good thing that people are waking up to the brokenness, sin, corruption, and injustice in the world. We should care about that. But how, how do we achieve justice, really? Ultimately speaking, we want a more, a more perfect union, a more just society in America. We say that in our founding documents. Can we get there by politics alone? Can we achieve it economically? Can we achieve it educationally? These things are limited. The reason the day of the Lord is a good thing is because what the promise of the day of the Lord is, someday the judge will return who's perfect and good. And he and he alone who has the resources to do so will deal with every injustice, will right every wrong, will restore all things. That's good news for those who long for justice. It ought to be good news to us. If you don't believe that, I think the tendency is to slip into one of two extremes. Either you become sort of a desperate um, and an angry um, activist who's all up to me. Right now, I've got to fix everything. And why don't you get on the program? Or, or you slide into becoming a callous and indifferent cynic. It's the way the world always is. Nothing I can do about it. And, and both extremes are huge mistakes for followers of Jesus. We have the freedom of knowing that the judge will return one day and set all wrong things right. And therefore, I'm liberated. It's not all up to me, but I can work for his good and his kingdom where he gives me opportunity right now. Let's look at verses uh, 5 through 7 and 10, speaking of the day of the Lord. For they, the scoffers, deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Speaking about creation to the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And skipping to verse 10. But the day of the Lord, that's that phrase we're talking about. By the way, judgment day and day of the Lord are the same thing. Will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Okay. Peter is saying something very interesting, which I had not connected until studying for this sermon. If we go back one slide. For they deliberately overlook this fact. What do they overlook? That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water. He's speaking about creation. God hovered over the surface of the deep, separated the water from the dry land. Meaning, if you object to the idea of a judgment day, you're really objecting to the idea of creation and a creator. I had not made that connection before, but I think he's, it's profound. Think about it. If the universe wasn't created, if you are the random collocation of atoms, or as the atheist Bertrand Russell said, if you are the end accomplishment of forces which had no prevision of the ends which they were achieving, that's a philosopher's way of saying you're an accident. You, you, there's no ultimate meaning to your life. There's no moral purpose for your life. You're just here. If you believe that, then judgment day makes no sense at all. Who's judging? Judging what? There's no purpose or meaning behind this. But if you believe there is a creator who designed, and we've made a mess of his creation, but he designed it with intent and with purpose. If there is moral meaning and order behind this, if there is ultimate purpose in creation, then it makes perfect sense that someday the good creator would return to restore all the things that we got wrong and deal with it. Peter's saying, those who reject Judgment Day have forgotten this, this world's created. Somebody's responsible for it. Somebody owns it. Somebody's guiding it, and he will one day deal with it perfectly. 
It's actually inconsistent and hypocritical to say there's no such thing as a judgment day, yet the world has meaning and order and purpose. Okay, let's look at verses 8 and 9, because now it gets really good. Not that it's been good before, but now it's really good. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is such a powerful two verses here for us, and, and so important for us to grasp what Peter's saying. I think this is the heart of the passage, these two verses. Peter's reminding us of some things here that are true about God, which we can intellectually agree with, but we don't always probe and think deeply about what they mean for us. For example, when you read the verse, um, with the Lord, a thousand years is one day and a day a thousand years. Most of you, how many of you heard that phrase before? Anybody? Most of us go, well, okay, whatever that means, right? I don't know what that means for me, but it's a Bible thing to say. God's big or eternal. I don't know, but you move on with your life. It's really profound and practical, actually. First thing, three things Peter's reminding us of. One is God is eternal. He's saying God is eternal. Now, how do finite people understand the infinite? We can't. Eternity is, is a mind bender. It's beyond our capacity to comprehend fully. We're never going to come to a perfect understanding. But Peter gives us this phrase about a thousand years in a day and flips it both ways for a very practical reason for us to get a, begin to get a, a little bit of a grasp for how, what this means and how we should live. Let's walk through it. He gives us what I think you could call a theological math formula. I don't think it's actually math, but he's saying, here's how you should think about your life. Let's take the second phrase first. A thousand years as one day. If that's actually true, that means 4,000 years ago, Abraham was born. We'll call that Monday. Right? 3,000 years ago, King David was born. Tuesday. You know, 1,000 years is one day, right? 2,000 years ago, can you guess? Jesus, roughly, was born. He wasn't born on a Wednesday. I'm just illustrating this. Right? A thousand years ago, William the Conqueror. Remember him from your European history? 1066, the Battle of Hastings. The Norman conquest invades and we get the king. Anyway, we'll just call him Will. <laughs> William was born on a Thursday. And a thousand years from William the Conqueror, us. We're born on Friday. And by the weekend, our generation is gone. Think about it. That's what Peter's saying here. He's saying a, a thousand years is one day. This life that we're living is so fleeting. It feels all-encompassing, all-important right now. But to God's mind, it's your earthly life is just a blip. The point, life on earth is very, very short. To illustrate this further, I'm going to show you a video that I found on YouTube. Actually, it was shared with me by Pastor John Bechtel. It's, uh, it's the history of Europe in 11 minutes. But I, uh, we've sped this up to be one minute for the sake of the sermon. Now, you're going to see on the left-hand column uh, a, a, a list of the nation's empires that were the most populous and dominant at that time. At the top, you're going to see the, the date, the year, rolling by. And you're going to see a map of Europe changing with colors based on which empire was ruling what part of, of Europe. Are you ready? History of Europe in a minute. Ready? Let's go. 
So we've got Roman Empire beginning here. Jesus is born right now. Jesus has already died. The Roman Empire, a thousand years. Constantine coming up right now. Now we're into the Middle Ages. The Holy Roman Empire is coming soon. The Byzantine Empire. William the Conqueror is born. Conquered, died. Right? The printing press is coming up in about 200 years, which is about a second and a half right now. And then the Reformation has come and gone. Across the pond, the Civil War is happening. World War I coming up soon. World War II just happened. And today. It's crazy when you think about it like that. But to God's vision, it's all happening in an instant. Everything's the eternal now to him, which feels like forever to us. And what's going to happen? And what's going to... Peter's saying, you serve a God who's eternal. He's not caught off guard. He's not stressed out. He's not, he's not, oh, I know, that's a long time from now. It's all present with him, including this very moment. Let's make it more personal. Psalm 90 puts it this way. This is a psalm of Moses, actually. He says, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger for your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Okay, let's do that. Let's try to number our days more personally for just a moment. Let's see if we can put a number to our days together. Again, if we take that that a thousand years is as one day, it almost says you live 70 years, 80. Well, we're living in the postmodern era where the medicine, medical science lets us make it to 80. We'll just use 80. 80, according to that mathematical formula, is just over two hours. One four-year presidential term, five minutes. Puts it in perspective. God's not going, oh, no. He's out of office. He's in office. This reality cuts through our sense of our present moment as all important. It is not. It's not unimportant, but it's not all important. We're consumed with worries about career, house prices, economic markets, election results, social media trends, and in an hour and a half, we're all going to be standing before the Lord. Now, the reverse math is also important for us because what he's saying in the reverse math is this. Don't make the mistake of thinking that because a thousand years is as one day that your life doesn't matter. It does matter because a day is also a thousand years. So if you flip the math around, 80 years is 26 million years. After the first service, a guy came up to me and said, I just want to let you know, Pastor Jeff, I'm 26 million years old. (laughs) Your life extends into eternity. It counts. It matters. Do you ever feel stressed or anxious about all you have to do for the week? Sometimes on Sunday evening, we'll be sitting on the couch, or my wife will be knitting, watching the Cubs, and I'll be there. I'm I'm there, but I'm not there. Can anybody relate? She's like, what are you thinking about? Nothing. It's not true, you know. I'm just turning all the things I have to do on starting on Monday. But from God's perspective, you've got all the time in the world. Take the first thousand years off. Relax, right? You've got time. God's never caught off guard. He's never stressed out. He's never anxious. He's never wondering how it's all going to get done. It's all present to him. And we can rest in that. We should rest in that. It should help us be more present. Praise God that he's not on our timeline. Thinking this way helps me slow down. Second, God is patient. 
this, the, verse 8 and 9 tell us God is eternal and God is patient. The context here, again, is this specific promise of his return. The very thing that the scoffers say is not going to happen. Where is he? The psalmist often cries, Psalm 13, Psalm 71, in fact, Psalm 90, which we just read, How long, O Lord? When are you going to do something, God? How many of you have ever felt that way from time to time? Where are you, God? How long? I'll talk to people in, 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 often when they look out at the world, the brokenness, the sin, and the corruption of the world, and they'll say things like, come, come Lord Jesus. And I, I, have this, I feel the same way, the same sentiment. But what we usually mean by that is, come and get them. Come and deal with those people. But the Lord is patient with you. In fact, notice what the verse says in verse 9. The Lord is patient with all those awful people. It's not what it says. What does it say? The Lord is patient with you, with me. Think about that for a minute. Let that sit with you. God is patient with you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're here because of the amazing patience of God. Patient long enough to woo and to win and to rescue and to redeem and to forgive you. I gave my heart to Jesus when I was in high school, 1987. He's patient with me. If he had not been patient with me or with you, where would we be? So we should check our hearts when we think, Lord, come deal with those people. He didn't do it for you. He will. There is a day coming. Don't make a mistake about that. There's a day coming. But don't be in a hurry. The patience of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord, the grace of the Lord to bring people into his kingdom. There's a corrupted kind of Christianity that's like, I, I want God to hurry up and deal with all the bad people. We want God to quickly bring justice to them, but take your time when it comes to me, Lord. Last, God is merciful. God is merciful. We're told he does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, there are people who have taken that verse, that single verse, and said, well, this, is, this means if God wishes or desires or wills that all reach repentance, then obviously all will reach repentance. Meaning if God wills it, then how can anybody stop it? So all get saved eventually. That's not what the verse means. It can't mean that. In verse 7, one verse before, he says, there's a day in which God will, has set for the judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 tells us that it is appointed for a man or a woman once to die and then to face judgment. So it doesn't mean that. But you might push back and say, well, doesn't it say that God wants this? So how, isn't he all-powerful? Well, think about it for a minute. There are all kinds of things that God desires which don't happen. God desires that you always tell the truth. But you lie. All of us have spun the truth, told outright lies. God desires that I am forgiving to those who have hurt me and wronged me because he's been gracious and forgiving to me, but I'm not always. Sometimes I withhold it, I hold grudges. Do you? There are all kinds of things God desires for your life which don't happen because you're a mess. And so am I, Right? So this is not talking about God's sovereign directive will of what will happen at the end of history. It's talking about his disposition, his heart. What is God like? And sometimes we're tempted to think, well, God is, he's the judge and he likes judging people. He's got a big gavel in the sky and he's like, judge you and judge you and judge you. And that's not who God is at all. Or maybe you make the mistake of thinking, well, you know, Jesus seems nice and gracious, but in the Old Testament, God's kind of in a bad mood all the time. He's angry and he's... He's wrathful and he's judgmental. But from the beginning to the end, God's revealed character is compassion and grace. 
Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, one of the key passages in the Old Testament. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God is. That's what Peter is saying. Beloved, never forget this. God's eternal. He's got everything under control. He's patient with you, with you. Think for a moment about the patience of God in your life. He's being patient with you right now, in this moment. And he's merciful, and he's kind, and he's loving, and he's gracious. Ezekiel 18 tells us he does not delight in the death of the ungodly. God's not celebrating when somebody rejects him and dies. It breaks his heart. He's just. But if you want to know what his character is like, what's his heart like, right here, Peter says, He's not slow. He's not taking his time. He's not forgotten. We tend to associate slowness with like, they're not paying attention. If I text, if you text me and I don't text back for three days, you probably think what? It's too busy for me. Not paying attention. It's probably true, right? Right? But don't, don't project that onto God. God is not slow. He's not paying attention. He doesn't care. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's because of his patience and his kindness and his mercy. In fact, we're told this is what he delights in is his saving work. That's why he delays. He is being patient in this moment with you. He is extending mercy to you right now and grace. Some of you are believers in Jesus Christ, but you've been resisting him in some way. Maybe it's in, in, in your finances. Maybe it's in some relationship. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's with your children. I I don't know, but there's some area of your life while you believe in Jesus and you're a Christian, there's some part of your life that you're holding out. And God is being patient with you, drawing you to himself. Give me all of you. And you're the one missing out for holding out, not him. Some of you are here, and you intellectually believe that God exists, but you haven't surrendered your heart to Jesus. You've been resisting him. And he's being patient with you. And he's extending mercy to you right now. In this eternal moment. Peter asks this amazing question, which we should always be asking in verse 11 of chapter 3. He says this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, meaning since this life is so fleeting and all this is going to come to pass, Meaning, if, if all this is true, this isn't just stuff we tell ourselves once a week to spiritualize our lives. If the Bible is eternal truth, if it's true, then what sort of people ought we to be? What, what should our lives be like if it's true that God is eternal, patient, and merciful? Should we live our 80-year, two-hour life full of anxiousness and fear and resentment and anger? That's a waste of a life. Or should we live it full of freedom and grace and joy? Because in a blink of an eye, I'm going to be in his presence. All the stuff that I'm stressed about and worried about and what's going to happen, I leave it to him. I have, I, I have this little life, this little slice of, of earthly life that he's given me. Why waste a second of it fearful or angry or dug in or resentful? It will not accomplish the purpose of God in my life or in the world. But live surrendered and joyful and free to the God who is eternal and is holy and altogether anyway who's being patient with you, with me, with the whole world. And if you cut him open, he's merciful and kind. In fact, he was cut open. And his mercy and love flowed out. What better way for us to 
experience the ministry of reminder than finishing our service by coming to the communion table. Where we are reminded of the patience, mercy, and grace of our Lord through bread and through cup. If you've not been with us before, it doesn't matter if you're a member of our church to us, if you've been here since you were a fetus or if it's your first Sunday here. What matters is that you know Jesus. You've placed your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. That you know he's your only hope in this life and for eternity. If that's true about you, then you're welcome to observe communion with us. If you've not had these before, just peel off that top layer as we do so. Let the sound of crinkling be the sound of grace in the room. And I'll pray before we take bread and cup together. Father God, thank you for the fact that you are eternal and we can trust you with the things that feel so all-important and crushing at times to us. They're not to you. And we rest in your eternal sovereign care. And thank you, God, that you are patient with us when we resist, when we rebel, when we run away. You're being patient with us. And thank you, oh, thank you, God, that you're merciful and gracious and forgiving. And as we now come to your table through bread and cup and we are reminded of the power of your patience and mercy and love and grace, we give you praise, Lord Jesus. Amen. The Bible tells us that Jesus broke bread and passed it to his disciples and said, this is my body. It is given for you. Eat this in his memory. And as you peel off that next layer, I remind you that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, poured out a cup after they'd eaten and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this and know that you are forgiven in Christ.